everyone. This is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And today we have an interview with cinematographer Ross Emery. Ross has been uh, working in film for a pretty long time now, and he has a ton of credits. Uh, recently, he shot, he DP'd Raised by Wolves, the TV series which just aired this fall. And we talked to him a lot about that and about finally working as a DP with Ridley Scott, who has always been a source of inspiration and somebody who he'd sort of been connected to or circling around for a while. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff that Ross has to share. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but among you know projects he's been second unit DP on, Matrix films, um, Alien Covenant, he was also a camera op on The Island of Dr. Moreau, 1996 film. And I bring it up because that's one of, the, one of those notoriously crazy sets and productions in movie history. And he provides as much insight as he's comfortable to provide about what it was like being on that set. Um, and for those of us who've had strange onset experiences, Ross's On Island of Dr. Moreau certainly take the cake probably all time, but he's just such a great, uh, great guy. And it's a great conversation and you'll learn a lot just about building a career, um, in a camera department and how he did it piece by piece over time. And he's shot massive projects and been on every manner of set. And so there's a lot of good stuff in here and I'm looking forward to you listening to it. First thing I want to start with is just what was the really the beginning for you? What got you excited, interested, and started in this career? What set you on this path? Well, I mean, I mean, it's a cool question in terms of like sort of like the way that sort of things happen in a very circular motion. Um, my father was a documentary filmmaker, and uh, so I kind of was sort of surrounded by sort of filmmaking ephemera from the very start. Uh, um, you know. My mother kind of loves to tell the story that I cut my teeth on film cores, that you know, I use film cores for teething rings. Um, <laughs> so at, at some point it was essentially inevitable, but to be quite honest, like right through high school and sort of after leaving high school, I didn't really ever have a kind of, I wasn't one of those guys kind of out on the weekends making Super 8 films and things like that. And uh, it was only sort of after a couple of years after high school that sort of this thing sort of hit me like a truck. And hmm. uh, I mean, in, it's interesting you sort of like talk about Raised by Wolves at this point because it's very circular because it's like one of the moments I think when I became sort of like hyper aware of cinematography was um, my father took me to see Blade Runner. Ah. And uh, that really kind of, you know, I kind of still remember the cinema where it was and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, it, that was the thing that kind of made me aware of this world of cinematography and, and how the visuals in, in movies can be such an exciting place to, to be. So to, to, to end up on a, on a Ridley Scott project and sort of yeah, working right. with him sort of telling that story <laughs> was this very sort of, um, you know, I didn't know it. I didn't, I tried not to fanboy too hard, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it was like, it's a pretty significant thing in terms of my entire career because it sort of top and tails it sort of very completely. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, that movie is such a important influencer for so many. I mean, it, it's, it's such a, it's such an impressive visual movie. 
did it sort of like it struck you in watching it like there's so much to do there there's so much you can do like what was it about it that that got you I think it kind of was one of the films that that sort of really completed that sort of uh, the achievement of sort of like completely wrapping the visuals into the story. Uh, uh, I, I think it's the you know Ridley is such a great world builder anyway, but um, that the look of that film. So like now we can kind of look back at it and because it's had so much influence in terms of like you know nineteen you eighties know, rock clips to any science fiction film since then has kind of touched its its hat to kind of Blade Runner in some sense. Uh, but when it first came out, it kind of literally was you were you were kind of completely immersed in this world, and every kind of piece of light, even though we see it now, is potentially somewhat kind of uh, there, there are cliches that have been built from that film. Right. But when you sort of recognise the film in its entirety at the moment in time that it came out, it it was just it was the total package. You know, there was a great story there. And, but the visuals just sort of intertwined their way into the story and the world that he built. I mean, you know, one of my favourite scenes is you know, literally just him sitting down at the noodle bar and it's like yes. everything around there, the rain and the light and the, you know, this sort of the, and it, it looks like that's how that world was supposed to look. And it wasn't sort of like a couple of sort of dressing moments and, you know, and a, and a, and a blue backlight. It was kind of a total immersion into that world and, and the visuals just sort of took you into that world so completely. So... I think that moment when you sort of realise that, you know, I think up to that point we were in a world where uh, directors were very much the influences of movies and it was just we just started to get that moment there in that sort of that decade that, you know, sort of Gordon Willis and The, and the Godfather might have kicked it off a little bit, but whereas the, the visuals became more important, if you like, it wasn't just sort of a support for the story, it was basically a real sort of like getting in amongst the story and getting in amongst the characters. And, and and that's what I like. It's like I like my job to kind of be sort of really kind of getting there and supporting characters and supporting story in, in any way you can. You know. Yeah, sometimes I feel like some of what you're saying, I agree, is like sometimes visuals started to express things that aren't expressed elsewhere. Uh, like yes. They go in their own direction suddenly. And, and those are movies and those Gordon Willis, of course, is a perfect example of a cinematographer who does that. Like he's, it's almost like a, it's its own. It's telling its own emotional arc as you watch. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. I mean, we all love those stories about sort of Gordon Willis shooting Godfather and kind of leaving some of those sort of sets so dark and like not seeing Marlon Brando's eyes. And yeah. when that sort of came out, and you know, I, I literally one of the things like I used to sit down when I kind of did get sort of bitten by this. It's like I would devour. Um, you know, American cinematographer and kind of read all those articles when they were were sort of great analysis of the of the photography and you'd read all those stories about how Gordon Willis had, you know, they had issues. The studio sort of said, why are you lighting Marlon Brando like this? You can't see his eyes. You can't. <laughs> and it's like, but now we just take it as going to completely appropriate act kind of to advance the yeah. character of, of Don Corleone. And so yeah. they wouldn't even, wouldn't even question it. But it's such a know, good point. So, it was, it was kind of punk at the time. Like it yes, wasn't like you wouldn't yeah. have shot a star like that that way. Now we just like, oh yeah, of course, you know. Like, <laughs> well, sometimes now you still have troubles shooting stars like that. But like. <laughs> well, yeah, you you would know better than I. <laughs> I was going to ask though. Let's go back to you for because so you know Blade Runner um, out of high school a couple of years that inspiration strikes and then what is the beginning? You know, I, you were raised around film and your father had been a documentary filmmaker, but you definitely went in completely 
different direction in terms of a filmmaking career, the documentary. So what, what was the, what were the next steps? Well, I actually ended up doing sort of like the first probably sort of three, four years, at least maybe five of, of doing documentary work. And, and that then kind of uh, seemed at that point in time kind of I morphed into sort of, you know, sort of more narrative work as, as an assistant and initially, of course, and kind of working in that world and then operating and then sort of uh, going through that way. So it was pretty much a factory floor kind of start, really. It's like I, mean, I really did start on factory floor. I mean, one of my first jobs was at a TV station in Sydney, kind of literally sweeping floors. And so it's like, you know, I wasn't even qualified to make coffee at that point. So it's... <laughs> So it was kind of there and kind of very much sort of like um, on the set floor sort of growing up. And, I mean, one of the things that kind of is great coming up through that way is um, as opposed to kind of the film school kind of way is that I learned so much on lighting from uh, these crusty old gaffers that used to used to hang out with on the, on the studio floor. And a lot of them are in sort of in my memory of, of kind of like, you know, sort of these guys who, you know, I was just like the you know, young kid kind of bouncing around, sort of like, you know, asking annoying questions. And, but, you know, those... Those gaffers who kind of literally, they, they'd been doing it for years and years and years at that point, and uh, they could teach you so much. And, like, for me, it was like a lot of those guys. And, and, you know, sort of the older, you know, the first ACs who'd been doing it for 25 years as well. So you kind of, what you do is you get in there and you kind of just empty their brains out as much as you can. And that's, that's I've learned, I've still used stuff today that I, you know, I got taught by the, some of the very first gaffers that I worked with when I was just an assistant. You know, literally just some of those, like, you know, sort of things that have been lost in the midst of time in terms of trimming lamps and setting so flags still and that sort of stuff. It oh, still applies, yeah. those and, early, yeah, the basics and, that you learned there. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that actually worries me a little bit that some of those skills have actually, for some reason, not kind of really travelled through the generations a little bit. I still kind of see, you know, some, you know, like a, a, a third electrics or grip kind of setting a flag and I kind of, in the back of my mind, I got, you know, oh, my God, if Brian saw that guy doing that, he'd be getting yelled at. <laughs> Uh, it's um I actually really I mean I, I do kind of sort of that, that path that I took I, I really like and but one of the things I well, I think I'm sure I would have kind of really loved doing like film school doing a college a college course is like um, film history sort of like really I really love film history and it's like all those stories about all those old films and how they did that I mean I still today don't know how they shot some of those films in the 40s and 50s in like you know sort of 16 days and things like mm -hmm. that. So they obviously knew what they were doing and it's always nice to kind of try and go back and figure out sort of, you know, why and how they did some of that stuff. Um, yeah, I'm, so, a, I'm, I'm also a huge fan of anything that sort of transports you to the methods and the time and there's so many different things in place and, and the technology transforms and then how do they adjust and, you know, all those things. But, um, but I do feel like it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, that like there are certain fundamentals you learned long ago that still apply that, that you see sometimes get lost in the process um, yeah it is a little i'm not sure i'm not sure why and it's not sort of like an old comanchini kind of sort of comment about mm -hmm. sort of younger generations or anything like that but it's like i mean i actually think like even you know today it's sort of like you know we can we should kind of pay attention to sort of some of the stuff they did back in the 60s 70s uh, 50s even because that's they're sol they were solving the same problems we've got now in terms of, of filmmaking but the tools they had to do it were you know a lot quite a lot bigger heavier more difficult trickier like you know sort of off film optical work and things like that you can I just stare at that stuff now and go oh my god how did you ever make a film 
you know, you look at how did they how did they shoot the chariot race and Ben Hur without stabilized heads, you know, all right. those sorts of things. So, you know, it's it's always good to pay attention and and uh, and sort of see well how did they do that because you know, I would we, love to we, know the answer to even that specific question because I have no. Well, you know, it is that thing. You know, we're all running around with Ronins and black arms and and all that sort of stuff and saying how good we are, but. Remember, they shot, you know, they shot Ben Hur on the chariot race in Ben Hur without stabilized heads with Technicolor cameras on the back of trucks. Yeah, so it's like you know. <laughs> so you know, we, we got to kind of have a look at that and go, okay, well, it's an, that's possible. So, and maybe sometimes it's a better way of doing things, but we're always going to have that option there. But so, I mean, anyway, and, and back to your question, is it sort of like that that kind of path sort of led me through there? So, um, I'm quite happy to kind of come up through the factory floor and. And, uh, and one of the things is just sort of working with guys that sort of were, were so, you know, so great at what they did and just sort of camera. I mean, Focus Blur or First AC is such a fabulous position on a film set, especially if you're an aspiring cinematographer, because you can just sit there and right beside the camera in those days and watch, a, you know, a DP and a gaffer and a camera operator, you know, light scenes and set shots and, and be involved in the setup and, it's a, it's a terrific way to kind of come through. And those were those were some of your first job positions, right? On a set, you were an AC and a and a focus puller early. On. I went this. I did this weird thing where I was an AC, but not for that long, and not because I kind of had some sort of you know you know incredible desire to reach the top as fast as I possibly could. But anyone who's in this business will admit that sort of their, most of their careers have a, a degree of complete dumb luck to them. <laughs> um, and it's like literally that sort of that adage of right place, right time, like really, yeah. really holds. What was that and, for you? Um, listen, I think what a, a bit, I think about this all the time. I really do because you sort of think about, okay, I'm, where I am here, okay, that's great, that's fantastic. But, you know, what were the sort of the, the occurrences that happened that kind of got you there? And, and you have to pay attention that, to that because, you know, you have to respect kind of the fact that some people looked at you and gave you a break or, yeah. or you – forced yourself upon them in such a way that <laughs> you know, you made it impossible for them not to give you a break. So, um, I, I started doing music videos, low budget music videos in Sydney with Alex Proyas, who went on to shoot The Crow and Dark City and, and things like that. And yes, we would kind of, you know, and that was literally, you know, a friend of mine was a friend of his, the guy who produced for him and, you know, they needed someone to kind of come in and you know, do these kind of crazy music videos that we used to do, work 24 hours straight and get paid Ones that he, nothing for he, them. And, and, and yeah. Preuss was directing the music videos. Yeah, Alex was directing them. And, and, and your mutual with, friend sort of brought you over into that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so I started working with Alex and that sort of that little circle became sort of a very sort of a really creative kind of a little group of people in Sydney at that time. And uh, and so we did that and I do remember shooting 24 hours straight on music videos with Alex and, and <laughs> They were always great fun, and I do really appreciate that that Alex kind of brought me into that circle. Plus, then we basically st I started. You know, so we'd do like an operating shooting kind of thing, where you know, sort of I'd sort of nominally kind of be the DP, even though I wasn't. But it was kind of Alex and I'd go, "Hey, let's do this. This looks cool," and we'd sort of both sort of share credit a little bit on them, and did some amazing short films and some amazing music videos, and then that went on to kind of you know, sort of larger commercial projects. Because Alex started getting sort of big expensive tv commercials and things and then that kind of led on to kind of when he got he actually did ask me to work on the crow in north carolina but that kind of again one of those moments you know sliding doors moments that i was supposed to go over and shoot second unit on the crow but what happened with brandon lee on that film that i don't know if 
a lot of people know, but Brandon Lee died in a, in a, yeah. a, a pistol accident on the set and that kind of just shook the whole production up and and uh, they ended up making the film of course and and uh, finishing the film but uh, I did I wasn't involved with it after that point because it was just a complete restructure but right it, the following year or two years later I think from that Alex did Dark City in Sydney which is like a very much a sort of a touchstone film for a lot of people a lot of sci-fi yeah. people it's a and then that was a great fun project and I ended up operating the main unit for Darius Wolski and then shooting the additional photography, which Darius got me to do, uh, for which is another four or five weeks of additional photography and with main cast and all that. And then I ended up, you know, spending like 12 weeks shooting all the miniatures and, and special effects and visual and effects I, material I, things. I have to interject because it's just, I know you know this, but just to illustrate for the audience, if they don't, it's our, it's just fascinating that like Blade Runner was kind of like this pinpoint moment for you and then Dark City, and especially yeah. shooting like miniatures and stuff, which is like yeah. another step in the evolution of, of um, and this is a theme certainly of like sci-fi visuals. You know, like I, I think the movies are very simple. There's a link. Were you was yes. it was it in, inspiration at the time? Was it in your mind? Was it you know with you and and Alex? Like how did it? Because Dark City is is like you said, it's definitely a pivotal moment for for sci-fi visuals. There's no question. Yeah, it was more kind of like um, not. I mean, Blade Runner, I think, I don't know whether Alex would, would sort of admit it completely in terms of like, we're, but I, should, I certainly know kind of he's a fan of that film. Um, we didn't set out to kind of recreate it, but more sort of recreate some sort of tone because like narratively there's a kind of a, a difference in that. And I think Dark City was more sort of inspired, visually inspired by sort of like the, you know, the German films of the 40s, some of that stuff. Oh yeah, like yeah. No, it has a uh, yeah. German expressionism yeah. feel. It yes, is a uh, it like this, um, yeah. cabinet of Dr. Caligari in there. There's a exactly. lot going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so that the, the miniatures, even though we love the scale of the like the Blade Runner miniatures, which were fantastic, those LA flyovers and things are so cool. Uh, we kind of we did do that, but we kind of wanted this sort of uh, it is that sort of what's the word? I suppose the word is just there's a step left there, which is like. You're not expecting people to kind of project themselves into a, a future reality. You're really asking people to sort of let you tell them a story. So it's like you can be a little bit more free with the with the visuals, a bit more warped. And, and that world, because it was like an alien-constructed world, we could have oddities in there which kind of like helped the whole sort of mood of the film. And the great thing was we shot those miniatures old school. You know, we kind of – we had a motion control rig, but it was literally like a big studio with, you know – hundreds of little buildings and little street lights and so little cars cool, yeah. and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So and, and on, on yeah. thirty five, like people just yeah. everybody knows it was on yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, all on film. And things like, you know, you kind of like set up this shot, which is like a flyover through the city or something like that. And you kind of go through and you get everything right and you get everything set and you go, okay, let's shoot this. And this is again is probably the technology of the time. It's like then you turn around to the motion control camera control guys and sort of say, well how long is it going to shoot this shot? And they say, well, we're going to shoot one frame every two seconds. So <laughs> and the shot's and the shot's twenty five seconds long. So that's like, uh, okay, fine. It's like three and a half hours. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, yeah. So it's like um, you kind of do that. But listen, that was great fun, and that, that kind of again. I mean, this is where they sort of like you know, we're, we're, I'm going to follow this thread through a little because uh, that that film, me doing all the work on that film, the following eighteen months after that, I think maybe a little bit longer. Um, the Wachowskis came to Sydney to shoot Matrix. So, and I 
got on the list to to go and meet Bill Pope to um, to be put forward for the second unit position, which again uh, Bill uh, accepted me, and and uh, I ended up doing all three Matrix films with Bill as second unit DP. So. And again, yeah, I, you know, I sort mean, of, that's a, that's a kind of a, you know, I don't know how, what more we can say about that film, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a, to go from, yeah. Blade Runner as an inspiration, but then dark city and the matrix. I mean, wow. So yeah. What can you say about the matrix? Um, I, well, I am I curious, I'm curious what it was like when you met with him and what your thoughts were going into it and how you, you know, what you say luck, but I know I'm sure you had a lot to do with obviously that, those conversations and, and getting on that set, getting that gig, like I'm, I'm curious and no one could have known, right. What the matrix would be, but did you oh, have I've, an I've inkling or, you know? Um, no, not really. I mean, no one knew, no one knew the Wachowskis. No, I mean, they'd done that, that other film bound, which is, a, yeah. you know, if, if, if anyone wants to see a really cool film, this film bound that the Wachowskis made two years before matrix. Absolutely. Yeah. A pretty remarkable film, but, I mean, the first thing that kind of like I saw basically was I walked into the office and and uh, before I was employed on the film and someone showed me some of the storyboards and there's the, the kind of a, if the, the Matrix storyboards are a bit legendary now because they were done by kind of some of the Marvel artists and they're the most extraordinary kind of piece of art really in sort of you know illustrating a movie in terms of you know what their vision was uh, and so that's the first thing I saw and it was like oh wow that looks cool and then. <laughs> It's sort of like it progresses there, and you go, oh, "That's that's really cool." And that's um, and then sort of I got onto the movie, and we sort of started prepping, and it became, yeah, the storyboard's really cool, but how the hell do we shoot that? It's like, <laughs> There's it's a lot like, of pressure, right? Because well, it was like inventing how the thing was going to be done, right? To some well, extent, well, absolutely right. I mean, on, we I had a great second unit crew. We had such a good time on that film. It was incredibly hard work. Uh, incredibly hard work and we did a lot of long hours and uh, and we ended up sort of second unit I've got a significant chunk of that film is, is second unit screen time and uh, but it was kind of we would have this sort of saying on second unit that like you know every six days we were doing something that no one had ever done before <laughs> and I remember sitting in production meetings Barry Osborne who's our producer basically we talked through this sequence of you know, whatever it was, with the bullets falling onto the down, raining down the camera at 300 frames yeah. a second from a helicopter that's 120 feet above you firing a minigun. And then Barry, we'd have this sort of meeting about sort of like, well, what are we going to do? This is the shot. Okay, well, okay. Everyone had some ideas. And then Barry would say, well, how long is this going to take? And I'd say, Barry, no one's ever done this before. I've got no idea how long it's going to take. <laughs> and it's like, was it like, did it, it, the way you describe it and the way I imagine it, was it like, you know, you just had no clue how it all turned out or was it, was it exciting or was it scary or was it both? I, I'm just fascinated by like how, it was, how it was scary because the Wachowskis were setting the bar really high yeah. and that's, that's kind of their, you know, their strength, especially in those, that, that first film, they had a vision and they really were uncompromising. They really wanted to get this. And so as you were working on the film it was very, very compartmentalized in terms of the sequences and so it was like, you know, we had these moments through there, which are kind of these that have now become these kind of iconic screen moments, like the bullets raining down, like the bullets hitting Keanu's feet on the helicopter, yeah. like the, the lobby scene with the disintegrating columns, like the, uh, yeah. you know, like the, the lobby scene when they set off the bomb and the flames run through the lobby at 300 frames a second. And 
Um, but as we were working on it, we couldn't really get our head up and kind of get an idea of the film as a whole because we were so, you know, concentrating so hard on getting this sort of small part of the film as as, as well as we possibly could that it kind of like, you know, we sort of like never really stuck our heads up and said, hey, what's going on with this whole film? So, uh, but, you know, there was the other thing I will say is that it's, um, there were some great minds on that film and, I'm talking, not talking about just the Wachowskis. I'm talking about some of the visual effects guys, not the the main supervisor alone, but although he had, he was responsible for an awful lot. But the sub supervisors and down to the grips and special effects guys and 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 construction people and things like that, who literally saw a challenge when they saw some of these sequences, and and went, okay, no one let up. No one was like, you know, this is as much as we do we can do, so let's stop. You know, I remember the special effects guys when they're setting up the helicopter crashing into the building shots. And it's like that was insanely difficult to get exactly what wanted with the radiating explosion and all that sort of stuff. But it, for some reason on that film, it's, I'm not saying it doesn't happen a lot, but everybody involved seemed to really invest in the film and make every sequence that they were they had anything to do with as, as well as they possibly could. It was a very sort of synchronous moment in time. So... It, so, so saying that, I mean, it was it was fun, but it was like I say, it was probably the hardest film I've ever worked on. It's uh, in terms of just the pressure of trying to get these things that you were kind of really working on the edge of the envelope. So, but consequently, sort of, I do also remember standing on the street outside a cinema and just before the cast screening, which was well before any kind of promo had come out or any trailers or anything like that. We kind of got a cast screening very early. And I remember standing on the sidewalk kind of saying to the other members, crew members, sort of saying, well, do you think it's going to be any good? It's like <laughs> everyone really had their doubts about, you know, whether because when you're in the middle of that battle, you know, yeah. all you can sort of see is like things blowing up and guns. And, yeah. and you don't kind of get this amazing sort of narrative subtext that the Wachowskis had right through the film in terms there was, yeah, of you know, people's existence and things. It was like, yeah. So, did, was that like yeah I, I mean wow yeah the the idea that you could you were so locked into your spot in the in the work all of mm. you that you had to get mm. it all right and there's this pressure to deliver it and you didn't necessarily see that there's these philosophical underpinnings running throughout this whole piece that was it when you when you saw it did you all kind of feel that there was something you know iconic um, happening there as yeah you i mean there's a there's a few hints and and like a, some some of the crew members i think it was some of the people in the second year crew it was like we were in the set where kiana's sort of apartment if you like and mm -hmm. we we're just on the set and kind of dangling around and sort of someone picked up this book that was on the shelf and it's like you know simulation and simulacra mm -hmm. which is you know <laughs> the book that he hides his little sort of hacking software inside right. of and, you know, that's just so significant. This person saw this book and said, what's this book? Why would he have, why is this book here? And it's like, you know, everyone sort of starts scratching their head a little bit and sort of something weird about the film. And, you know, a few people sort of started piecing some things together. But, mm. but it really it was only when you sort of see the film, probably for the second or third time, that you start understanding these themes that the Wachowskis were really interested in. So, which is yeah. like, you know, basically just pure human existence and, you know, and again, there's some of the same themes that are in Dark City in terms of are you more more than the sum of your memories and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, so, and also yes, yeah. Also, again, a theme in your work because I think uh, some of that is is in um, 
raised by wolves. Yeah. But I, oh, it keeps I, popping I, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape some of these things. It seems like I wanted to just go back because, you know, you, you, you continue to be a, a second unit director of photography, um, became director of photography on a number of, of movies people have seen. And I also wanted to mention, so you were on, uh, a sort of infamous set really in an in, in, uh, island of Dr. Moreau. And I'm just curious also working with, you know, one of the great, you know, William Fraker. Yes. Bill, uh, Bill. Yeah. Like I, I'm just, I, I can't go forward without just asking like, what was that experience like and what was, he well, like? you know, yeah, well, the listen, legends. Yeah. Well, listen with Bill, basically it's like, you know, it, what happened was I was, in fact, Darius Wolski was supposed to shoot that film, but they, they we were weak in and they decided that the, the original director, Richard Stanley, wasn't quite what they wanted. So <laughs> Richard left and Darius left with, with Richard. Uh-huh. He um, John Frankenheimer came in to direct the film and he brought Bill Fraker in. And uh, so, and again, that's sort of, you know, that was kind of early in the career. So essentially sort of like, if you want a three-year college course in cinematography, it's like you spend a week <laughs> on set with Bill Fraker. Because <laughs> so, he will straighten you out really quickly. It's like he's old school. He loves being old school. And it's like and I, I adore the guy. He, he was such a great guy to work with. And, but he, was, he, was, he wasn't a disciplinarian, but he just expected that, that this is how we do the job and this is how we behave. And... Uh, and he had an awful lot of respect for the job, which is what I really appreciated. It's like the position of cinematographer was his and the, the amount of respect he had for that job was astonishing. And it's something that I kind of keep in mind. Um, that said, that movie was just crazy. It was just like, <laughs> you can and, sort of tell from the outside, but wow, I, I can only imagine from the inside. Well, actually, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, tell me, if, tell me whatever you can about what it was like. Uh, listen, it was one of those sort of crazy things again, sort of this synchronous thing where we basically had this movie, and uh, to be quite to this day, the, the first script that Richard Stanley put out for that film that I read first up was an astonishing script. It, it was amazing. It's a reimagining of, of the Doctor Moreau kind of story, and. It, it was surreal and it was bizarre and it was it kind of hit all the notes. And as a script, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, But at that point, uh, what the problem was is that um, New Line had this property and Richard Stanley had convinced Marlon Brando to sign on as Dr. Moreau. And then that consequently we got Val Kilmer on uh, as the other lead. And, the, and he was just hot off the back of his Batman films. Mm. So... Uh, yeah, he was, at, his, he was sort of like yeah. peak stardom, really, at the peak, moment. Peak Kilmer, we called it, yeah. <laughs> it was like, um, and there was, so the New Line had this property, which they, you know, they basically pretty much admitted to me when I talked to some of the producers, is that, listen, we've got a DVD box with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brodo's name on the front. But, you know, it doesn't matter what this film's like, it's going to sell. <laughs> so, it's, um, so it was kind of this sort of weird sort of mix of, of conflict of, you know, sort of like economics and art. Very much so. And then on a day-to-day basis, we had such massive personalities with John Frankenheimer, who, you know, great 50s, 60s director and an yeah. awesome director. I've got to say that the time I spent on set with him, it was just astonishing to kind of see a, a director who just took control of a set and, like, he was the, he was the king. That was yeah. it. Nobody else. 
And the first sort of three weeks I think we shot with John was just absolutely awesome. He was designing these amazing shots and doing these amazing scenes. And and then Marlon turned up. Um, and, <laughs> and so we had these three personalities of Val and Marlon and John Frankenheimer and sort of then wrapped around this kind of, you know, the, the general craziness of a film production anyway. And then you set it in the in the tropics in north, the north of Australia. And... <laughs> It kind of, it literally was like a hearts of darkness kind of thing started happening, and it's um, the conflict started, and the, the you know the creative differences started, and the battle between the various the various people started, and and uh, there's a we have an Australian expression which is called going tropo, which is the people who sort of spend too long in those sort of tropical zones, and and the heat and the alcohol and the and the sort of the mental state sort of start disintegrating and. It kind of felt like that was happening on that, and and uh, the, the studio were kind of pretty happy to kind of just let it take its course and try and figure it out later a little. Um, but I think I basically, yeah, I basically put it down to kind of these massive personalities, but that kind of then sort of you know kind of infused into the the, the lower levels. And I mean, you can't believe what the day to days were like on that. It was just kind of like you would turn up, and the story, the story is so surreal anyway that. That, that surreal nature just kind of infected everybody. And, and so there was general bizarreness happening all over the place. <laughs> well, like you had these animal creatures running around, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. and you had two of these performers who were both, you know, expert at going to strange extremes and creating a strange extreme in the experience. And you were on the location. I can't even imagine. It must've felt like you were in some kind of fever dream. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how many people have actually seen the film, but... I know, have. I, I saw it in I, the theatre. I was excited well, to see it. <laughs> try and transport yourself into kind of like working. There's two scenes I'll talk about in particular. One, which is um, Daniel Rigby, who was, a, who was a great actor who played the hyena man, who did such a... worked his butt off on that and did like a really great job on this one character. And he creeps up to Moreau's house and he has this... he has ill intentions and that's all about the sort of the themes, which is Moreau, which is like, you know, killing your creator. So, and he, he peers through the window of the, the house. And what he sees is Marlon Brando uh, in a big white sheet sort of thing, with something wrapped around his head, playing a giant black grand piano. And then on top of the grand piano is a performer who we, they found called Nelson De La Rosa, who at that time was the shortest human being in the world. And he stood about two foot tall. And Nelson is dressed exactly the same as Marlon, and he's sitting on top of the grand piano playing a miniature grand piano. And this is what Daniel Rigby's character, the hyena man, sees when he looks through the window into the house. And he's a hyena man, which you know. Yeah, and he's a hyena man. So uh, I, 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 it's just kind of like you kind of sit there and you turn up and you walk on the set and you go, this is what we're doing, and you go, okay. All right, that's good, and that sort of that happens. And Marlon just embraced this thing completely because I think, but he's a he's a genius as far as I'm concerned because he saw the surrealness of this story and he embraced it. And so that kind of happened. But then the other scene that that I thought was just phenomenal, which is um, uh, Feruza Balak, who plays one of the kind of essentially sort of Moreau's daughter as such, but she's actually she's a creature woman. She's a you know part cat, part girl. And she's having her own kind of, you know, sort of essentially puberty problems. And um, 
So she comes to have a kind of you know, father-daughter chat with Moreau, who's sitting on the balcony of this house, this tropical house. And we went in to kind of block the scene and sort of started talking about it. And the props guy came up to Bill Fraker and said, listen, I just wanted to let you know um, Marlon sent me from his trailer and he said, during this scene, he's going to be wearing a bucket on his head. <laughs> and it's like Bill was like, looked at the props guy and said, what? <laughs> and so he ends up doing this scene with this like bucket sitting on his head. And it's not sort of bucket over his face. It's like sitting on the top of his head, this galvanized bucket <laughs> like in the props hat. department. Is like a hat. And the first thing that happens in the scene is Faruza Balak walks towards him and sits down and says, father. And Marlon says, oh, fill me up, please. And then she then proceeds to grab a scoop from a bucket nearby and pour ice into this bucket head, bucket on the top of my own brother's head. And so what's happening at this point is myself and Brad Shield, the other camera operator, are discussing with Bill. So, Bill, when we're doing the, the close-up, do we frame, do we adjust the headroom to frame for the bucket or should we just keep a correct headroom and, like, cut the bucket in half? <laughs> and Bill would quite seriously say, listen, I think this might be sort of something that's important. So maybe just pull back a little wider. Let's frame the bucket. The end of that night, <laughs> the three of us, because we used to travel together in the same car, Bill, myself and Brad, the car doors closed at the end of that night. Oh, we, all three of us just broke up laughing. It was just like it was the most surreal situation. And oh, we're not even touching the worst stuff in that film. It's just, <laughs> listen, we, have, we, we can't talk forever about this, but let's, let me say something. <laughs> Everything you heard is true. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, I and like there's I more. I could talk to you. Yeah, I could talk to you forever about what happened there. Um, oh, but yeah. yeah, I think we have we will have to move on. But thank you for humoring me and and sharing just anything about it. It's fast. You know that like we started talking about film history. You were there's a convergence of some of the biggest greatest personalities in the history of the medium on that set, mm. you know? So, yeah. You know, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, mean, uh, yeah, I used to, I was sitting down and Marlon and, and John Frankenheim would just sort of start chatting about the old days and then they call Bill over and they, oh, you remember when we were on Missouri breaks and blah, blah, blah. And you're just sitting there listening to all this stuff. And that was just, again, that sort of position on set where you're just like sitting there watching these three guys, Marlon Brando, Bill Frager, John Frankenheim, just chatting about the old days and the old films and we did that and we did that. And, uh, it's yeah, crazy. John, they were, was, uh, John was terrific. He loved the younger crew. Because, I mean, we were a pretty young crew at that point, so what he was used to working with in America. and uh, and But he loved the younger crew, and, and Marlon loved the crew as well. So we had a really, really sort of fun time from that point of view. But, you know, I came back, and <laughs> this is the perfect description. I'm, I'm stealing someone else's line here, I'll say. You come back from a film like that, and you go to the supermarket, and all you can do is buy the ingredients for gin and tonic. So it's like, it's kind of incapable of functioning in the real world for about three months. So. That's a great one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I Bill Fraker's uh, resume and John Frankenheimer's are just speak for themselves. They're un unbelievable. But going back to you, uh, so we so after that and the Matrix and you know everything, you shot um, you shot a bunch of other movies, the Matrix sequels. Um, so you started becoming, you moved from second unit to a director of photography. What was the move like? And you'd had a lot of success. What what spurred it and what, what started the the next evolution for you? 
Oh, listen, I mean, I think you, you're always doing that. And for a little bit, for a minute there, I was kind of like, would have been very happy kind of doing second units because on, on interesting projects because, you know, it's a great place to be. Sure. But, you know, there's inevitably sort of like, you know, being responsible for your own film is like sort of what you really love to do. And it it, it, it came along sort of reasonably easily, sort of like because the, the profile of the work I've been doing on second units kind of like actually gave me a, a certain sort of um, comfort to studios that, you know, if I can handle a, a second unit on a film like Matrix or like some of the other things I did that sort of uh, the, the film, they knew that sort of like the, it was it was kind of I had, there was a certain amount of trust that they had. Yeah, I would have that. almost thought that yeah. you probably had said no for a little while before you decided to do it because your resume was so strong. But yeah. Um, I, I, in fact, I, I did actually because I was yeah. kind of at that point I was sort of waiting for a project that was kind of uh, an appropriate one to sort of kick off on. And I had been offered some other films that, I kind of turned down for, you know, a plethora of reasons, but usually because I kind of didn't have a lot of faith in the kind of the, the production. Um, so the, the first film I shot was a film called K, which actually is a, a, a kind of a, a again, sci-fi monster sort of film that we shot in Romania. And the the director on that was a guy called Bruce Hunt, who was actually the, direct, the second unit director on the first Matrix film. He didn't do two and three, but he did the first uh, one. Yeah. And he's a very good friend of mine. And, and so we traveled off to Romania and, and, uh, got Patrick Totopoulos to, you know, build a few fantastic monsters for us and and uh, did a really enjoyable film as far as me sort of working on it in, in Romania. It's like, it was, a, again, a, a tough film from photographically because the whole thing sort of happens in caves. Right. And uh, underwater and in caves. And so it's a, it was a little challenging from that point of view. And I, I probably became the world's leading expert on flashlights. <laughs> uh, when I was doing pre-production for that flashlights film. and yeah yeah and I've actually just to be quite honest I've just been sent a script for another film that's set in a cave and I'm kind of like processing the same kind of thing so in terms of like the, you know the, the guy who the props guys who look after all the flashlights are the guys who become your best friends yeah uh, but yeah but listen that's that, terrific for that and it's like I, I, I kind of really enjoyed that film and the difference between shooting second unit and main unit is, is quite significant but uh, the main thing is that for to be quite honest, I kind of felt main unit was a little easier because, you know, the only expectations are your own. Uh, mm. You're not trying to double think like a Bill Pope or a, or a Darius Wolski or, or a Bill Fraker in terms of what would they do and uh, how can I kind of do that, even though there's a particular talent to that, which I really sort of, I really enjoy getting into. But um, it just becomes your own expectations are the ones that you've got to be. And, uh, and that, and getting in there and, and kind of really, you know, I enjoy prep. I really enjoy prep and getting in and kind of pulling apart a story and pulling apart a character and, and actually even sort of to the point of sort of like, you know, spending time with the makeup artists and things like that to kind of see where they're thinking about going and, and, and uh, which direction they're going and uh, sort of really creating the roadmap for the whole film. Yeah, I've heard a lot of DPs that I've spoken to have talked a lot about the prep, the importance of prep and how they use that time to discover, you know, everything from, you know, nowadays with, with lens choice becoming more important because if you're mm. shooting on a digital format or, you know, stock testing out different things, like what do you usually use your prep time mostly for? How do you approach it? Um, normally I'll kind of, I won't get into kind of technical stuff like, uh, you know, lenses and cameras and stuff straight away. I'll really kind of try and get in there and sort of absorb as much of the, of the kind of the tone of the film as possible. It's like nowadays normally sort of production designers start a good sort of couple of months before the DP starts. And 
ideal world, you would have had some contact with them anyway. And, um, you know, I really I, I enjoy kind of getting involved with the art department and sort of seeing some of the first concept art and then sort of matching that into the script and then talking with the director about, you know, sort of the visuals of this scene, uh, you know, what is it in this scene that is the most important. I, I, have, I keep coming to this back, this, this thing, this word called in, intent, and it's like, what's the intent of the scene? And uh, sometimes it's sort of quite, you can find scenes in scripts which appear quite insignificant, but they, once you find out the intent of the scene, they can come to, sometimes become quite important scenes. And you've got to pay attention to that sort of stuff because if visually you don't support the intent, the intent can get lost. And that means that that building block for the movie kind of becomes a little weaker. Hmm. So you've got to sort of set all that stuff out. And so in, in, in prep, I normally kind of go through this sort of exhaustive sort of trawl through the script and kind of trying to find those pieces that are important and uh, make sure that whatever the production design is doing and whether our visual effects are planning and things like that is kind of we're all on the same page in terms of the intent. Uh, and so, and sometimes it can be quite sort of contrary to kind of what the dialogue is in the scene. So sure, yeah. it's like, it's, it's doing that sort of deep dive into the script and kind of trying to find the subplots and the subtext. And, and then you'll kind of find a, a really good sort of path, a really good map of the kind of where you want to be. Um, the other things in prep is like, you know, that's like the story arcs and things. I'll normally kind of do uh, like a visual arc of the story and just sort of hit that, making sure you're hitting the same notes that everybody else is and you're not pulling in the opposite direction. So, so once you've got that kind of down, then you sort of literally start figuring out um, things like lenses and, and cameras and stuff like that. I'm, I'm an Arri Alexa fan. Uh, since they first came out, I've just been yeah. in love with those cameras. Yeah, I was going to um, ask, and, what are you shooting uh, as we go on to Raised by Wolves, which ties into so much of the other work, it's kind of crazy, like how, how much it feels like it's it's a part of this themes you've worked in and the styles but what do you go, what did you guys shoot on we shot on alexas on, on yeah. race by walls i mean interestingly enough it was like it was kind of we shot which was largely visual effects decisions that we didn't shoot large format we didn't shoot sort of super high res we actually shot the whole film on 2.8k and uh because it was like you know the various sort of things that kind of happened that kind of got out that visual effects are very happy to shoot on 2.8k there was no sort of they basically and for us, it meant that, you know, not shooting large format or not shooting other formats, we kind of had every single lens made since 1945 available to us, um, which is kind of what we did. It's like, so regular Alexas, uh, 2.8K, we shot Panavision lenses. Um, we had Panavision ultra speeds and super speeds and primos and, and things like that. And they're just such great workhorses. They really are. They photograph really, really beautifully. And... And they're you know robust as hell, and they can take whatever you throw at them, and and they keep going. And within the Panavision family of lenses, you know you can scale up and scale down in terms of what sort of resolution you essentially. And I say resolution in terms of like you know, measuring the resolution of, a, of an optical lens, um, whatever resolution you want your lenses to be. Uh, and the the whole prep process for Raised by Wolves is slightly different because I mean that's the first television I've ever done. Yeah, and I was so, going to start asking you, but you're you're already ahead of me. <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah. The, the, the issue, no, the issue no. was is that yeah. the scripts were being delivered as we were shooting. So when we were shooting episode four, we didn't know what was in episode ten. 
so we had kind of outlines and we had sort of sort of story arc things and stuff like that. But in terms, and you're also working with big, other cinematographer, like your yeah. team. It's a whole other experience. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of had to sort of make this game plan of kind of not making sure we don't sort of suddenly go spearing off in a direction which two episodes from now is kind of seen to be kind of like counterproductive to the story. Um, so that was challenging. And Eric and I, Eric Messersmith, who was the other DP on the, the series body, Darius Wolski shot the pilot, uh, we would kind of constantly talk about sort of trying to get information from Aaron, the, the, the showrunner, about, you know, which direction we're going and stuff like that. But the problem with Raised by Wolves is it is such a kind of uh, bizarre, surreal kind of story. And I think at the moment, right now, while we're, while we're recording this, I think we're up to about episode eight, which has been released. And, you know, don't worry, episode nine can't tend to just going to kick, kick people's butts because it's like it's, it's this, these themes in the show uh, are so extraordinary and so kind of preposterous, if you like, that uh, it became an exercise in grounding the visuals. And this is what we talked about quite, quite extensively is because you have such a preposterous premise in this, in this show, and by preposterous, I don't mean silly. I just mean... High concept, ex- yeah, like so yes. out there, so big, Very, so yeah. Uh, almost, yeah, Philip K. Dick. Like it's 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 right in there with Matrix and yes. uh, Blade Runner, so. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I don't think you could shoot this show like a Matrix or a Blade Runner because you, because we're expecting the audience to kind of get on board with these, these premise, this premise. Yeah. That your visuals actually have to kind of pull you back a little and ground you a little more. And ah, we, we kind of had that conversation early on that, you know, you didn't want to kind of go for kind of, you know, bullet time moves and you didn't want to go for kind of like, you know, extraordinary kind of fly throughs and stuff like that because you actually kind of need the audience to kind of just have one hand on the on the ground, if you like, or one foot on yeah, the ground I see. while they're it watching just... it. Yeah. So we kind of, and, and we took note, we kind of took some leads from the stuff that Ridley did and we talked with Ridley quite extensively through the show. And he has such an amazing mind for the uh, the real essence of what's important in the show and, and what what mattered and what doesn't. Sometimes it's all this sort of thing. And he said, "Oh no, don't worry about that. That'll be fine." So, <laughs> what what is it like so, collaborating with him? Can you tell me a little bit about like, especially because he had such a you mentioned it at the open, but I want to circle back to it. Like have, having such an influence on you and be obviously one of the most important visual you know artists well, in cinema. Yeah, this is how you deal with Ridley Scott in a visual discussion. You stay very quiet and you listen. <laughs> that's, that's it's not exactly like that. I'm, I'm joking a little, but it's, the, 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 the essence is there. <laughs> the essence is there. It's like you, know, you don't sort of slavishly copy. But again, it's that thing of like you listen. To, I've listened to directors and talk for years and years and years, and and you have to have this sort of like you know internal translator in terms of what they're saying and then what they mean, and. Uh, and then you can kind of decipher things and kind of manage your way through. But um, but that was kind of like the sort of the key visually. And But interestingly enough, once Eric and I kind of sort of took control of the show a bit more, the storyline started coming in, which did accommodate a slightly more sort of uh, surrealness and, and a little bit more out there in the in, in the story. And it's like, you know, that, that beautiful scene that Eric did in the, in the simulation, which was... Um, when Mother, who's an android, essentially has this like lovemaking scene with the scientist who created her, which is this incredibly kind of surreal moment, and uh, and 
the the visuals kind of like just sort of this astonishing visual of these two people floating in air and this of all this I won't do any more spoilers but you know it could accommodate a little bit more of those sort of moments and things like that which we did further on but I think for the first sort of step in the first five episodes we kind of really had this idea of just keeping people more grounded and just sort of not kind of just pushing out some of those really fantastical kind of moves or lighting or or anything like that to kind of just make sure that sort of people kind of were just kept them a little unbalanced. They sort of go, you know, it's am I watching something which is sort of like a reality or am I, am I just sort of taking my feet off the ground and, and being totally embraced in the, in the sci-fi nature of things? So, yeah, so it sounds like the, the need to create a visual experience that's familiar was critical because the concepts were so unfamiliar, whereas sometimes mm. you would do the opposite, right? Like you needed yeah, to find it is, to bring people home. Yeah, exactly. And it is that thing of like supporting the story. And it's like that sometimes, you know, supporting the story can mean like a Blade Runner where you kind of just build this fantastical world that this guy kind of floats around in. Um, and this, in this sense, that supporting the story means making sure that the, the perspective that the viewer has is familiar enough so that they will then ease it more easily accept the kind of this more surreal and bizarre concepts that are being presented. Yeah. Um, did you, enjoy, I mean, as far as like working in, in the tea, in the medium and television uh, and, and collaborating in this way, uh, have you enjoyed it? How would you compare it like as an experience to all the cinema, all the feature film work? Well, on this particular project, it wasn't sort of too dissimilar, to be quite honest. I think we had, we had a very pretty good budget, healthy budget, a pretty good schedule. I mean, it's actually kind of quite funny. Checo Veresi, who's a friend of mine who does a lot of TV stuff and, I, I, I basically emailed him and I said, check, I was going to do a TV show. It's like, how do you shoot 10 pages in, in a day? <laughs> and check, okay, send me this great email. So it's like, in the morning you do a crane shot and a steady cam shot. In the afternoon, all the characters sit down, sit down at a table and talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> does it work? But, well, occasionally, yeah, it does. But uh, our, our schedules weren't as punishing as some of the TV stuff shows that I've heard about in terms of like, you know, sort of page count and things like that. And um, so it was, it was a little bit, I, I don't think it's completely sort of realistically indicative of what TV schedules and things were like, but in terms of the the process, I love the fact that we had 10 hours to tell a story though. Yeah. And that means that you could kind of develop things and that's what a lot of people say. So. So when you have, having wrapped, are you, what's, what's sort of the next What's coming next for you? Are you going to look to do more television projects or is, you know, you're going to balance? It seems like to me and, and having talked to a lot of people that, like you said, there's so much you can do that's cinematic and large scale on these streaming platforms. Uh, Raised by Wolves is HBO Max. There's so many places for them. Is it is it is it kind of just like all the same at this point in a way? A little. I mean, I think what, what we're into now, though, is like, you know, sort of like whether the project is sort of a streaming platform project or traditional TV or a feature film, it's kind of becoming a little bit inconsequential in, in the decisions. You're just looking for the best project. Right. And the, the one that will kind of give you, the, you know, hold, hold your interest to, in, the, the most, in the most sort of firm way. And I, I've never sort of been sort of like against tuning TV. I think we kind of probably pretty much passed that whole thing of sort of like, oh, that guy only does TV. Yeah, um, no, yeah, absolutely. So I think sort of, you know, seeing sort of, you know, Jeff Cronenworth kind of doing that TV stuff that he did, that, that show he did, which is so amazing. And some of the stuff, amazing stuff that's coming on TV 
I'm a big fan of, you know, things like Ozark and stuff like that. And, yes. You know, a, yeah. It's funny. We had him yeah. on too. And it's, and I, and I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking very similar with both of you having shot um, so many of these great movies and bringing so much of that sensibility to what's on these, these, these series, limited series or TV shows where they need that sort of cinematic sensibility because they're high concept and they're blending, you know, real world with, with fantastical concepts and uh, so you bring a DP who's been shooting that stuff for years. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and listen, I think I think that the difference is, if there is a difference, I think sort of in the past, uh, very much in the past, you know, television was, you know, you turn up with, you know, a camera or two cameras and a grip truck and a lighting truck and that's your package and you do whatever you can with that. And now sort of like the feature film mentality is that, okay, what, what do we want to do? And let's, okay, let's bring what we need. And let's plan to kind of do what we need, which is best for the show. So that mentality is now sort of you know, taking over TV production in terms of you're not just kind of setting up a couple of cameras and, and shooting what's in front of you. You're basically really sort of um, getting involved in prep and, you know, in design of, of shots and of scenes and of, of worlds and things like that. So it's, um, you know, it's a much, it's a much, it's a different mentality. I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily kind of only TV or only film. And I think, that as we go through the, the technology is sort of making it easier to kind of do more interesting things in TV. And uh, so it's, and so it just becomes the story. And, and it's interesting to kind of see people like Ridley Scott jumping into that world. And uh, so he's obviously seen the, the opportunity to kind of you know, have a larger canvas to sort of, to, to sort of play with in terms of the time, you know, so that we can kind of develop storylines and you can develop more characters and, and take people on a longer trip than, than the, the usual sort of two hour trip. So. Yeah. So you've, you worked through like what has been this massive tech technology shift um, mm. from, from analog to digital, from, from film to, you know, the digital medium and the sensors and the chips. And I'm curious, you know, has it, how has it impacted you and, and what is your, how, how do you feel about it? Um, and what do you think about the next, you know, the direction? It seems like, you haven't really missed a beat, but how did it how did it change for you? The great thing about I mean, you got to kind of like sort of pick this apart a tiny bit, but um, when digital first came in, obviously I was kind of always of the opinion that you know, listen, the minute the digital stuff's as good as film, I got no problem. I don't I don't sort of have this sort of like you know um, fear of the technology or anything like mm-hmm. that. I'm very yeah. much sort of end, end result focused. So when those first sort of Alexis came out and probably the second Alexis that came out and we really started seeing a digital camera that could kind of capture in the same way that, that people like to see it, that, you know, and uh, in terms of, and for me, it kind of came down to color reproduction and latitude and things like that. The early digital cameras were a real sort of struggle, you know, yeah, they really were. And, uh, and so once that kind of got there, I was kind of quite happy to kind of take that. It was, it was, I mean, for all of us, it was a very scary time and we all hit it very well. But, <laughs> but um, getting into this new technology and finding out, you know, we were so baked in was this sort of discipline from film, um, yeah. which is kind of, you know, underexposure, overexposure, taking care of your neck, taking care of the neck for dupe, you know, for, for dupe work and for effects work and all these sorts of things. So what digital did is kind of freed you from a lot of those restraints. So... Um, you could be braver. You could be sort of take more risks because you knew that you know that the downside wasn't quite as as bad as taking risks on film. 
Yeah, where you wouldn't see until you got the dailies, right? You wouldn't know. Yeah, what you got. exactly. Yeah. So uh, I don't miss. I do not miss. Like you know, those those neg reports coming in, coming in in the morning, and you know potentially sort of something has gone wrong with the, the dailies from the day before. Yeah. Is there anything about it you miss? The it was always a a, a pleasant surprise when it came out. Uh, <laughs> so it, when you were shooting film, it always came out looking a little bit better than you thought it would. It's um, and that was the thing. It's like you know, you did all your things and you had your little sort of tricks and you had your little sort of you know fallback plans and stuff. But when you finally saw that film, and, and some of it may have been because there was usually a separation of you know sort of twenty four hours or eighteen hours before you watched dailies, um, and you'd kind of forgotten a little bit of what you'd done, and when you saw it back again, you go, "Hey, that's actually pretty cool." Um, <laughs> And occasionally when, you know, when you're in a position where you could take risks and, you know, you, we were doing sort of, you know, pull processing, push processing, bleach bypassing and uh, taking, yeah, taking risks. And it came, it, and when it came out, it was, oh man, that was so exciting because it yeah. was like, you know, you, you've got this nervous energy of like, you know, what's it going to look like? How's it going to go? Did it work? And then when it comes off, it's just like, wow, that's really cool. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. No problem. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, thanks to Ross for being on the podcast. I realize sometimes I forget to thank people for being on the podcast. So I really regret not thanking everyone. It's always amazing to get people on here. And such a thrill to talk to someone like Ross in particular, who has seen so much and worked on so many great projects. Um, we have a lot of cool interviews on this podcast. We had Malin Ackerman earlier. We had Maddie Libatique a couple weeks ago. We've had, um, we're going to have Faden Papa Michael on soon, who shot Trial of Chicago 7, but he's also shot like, I don't know, everything. Uh, so we're getting all kinds of great stuff and it's exciting. And please also check out our weekly podcast where I am on with Charles Hain along with some other guests occasionally just talking about the week in filmmaking news. Uh, head over to the No Film School website. Um, right now, we have information about the Sony FX6. Very exciting new camera. You're going to want to read about it. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Like, rate, and subscribe. Leave a comment. Ask us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com. And I don't know if I'm forgetting anything, but if I am, I've probably said it before. Thanks so much for listening.